All right. Well, hey, we've made it to the end of the sermon series on marriage, and no one's gotten divorced. Right? Amen. Hallelujah. There we go. There we go. Well, today we're going to put not just the capstone, but the bow tie on marriage as we turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. But before we go there, I want to start with a story. Start with a story. I won't embarrass them by saying their names. They've given me permission to tell this story. I know of a couple that's been married for 63 years. 63 years, not alive for 63 years, but married for 63 years. That's pretty remarkable. Their children and their grandchildren rave about their marriage. Say it's one of the godliest examples of marriage they've ever known. And these two people, I I, I went and met with them on Friday. I just wanted to interview them, ask them, talk to them, see what I could learn, because I've only been married for 15 years, right? I know enough to be dangerous, right? I wanted to ask them, hey, How do you do it? (laughs) What works? How do you make this happen? Can I share with you some of the things I learned about their marriage? This is really cool. Feel free to say aw, right? They still love riding around in the pickup truck together with the radio off. Why? Because they just like talking to each other. They just enjoy talking to each other and spending time together at night. They're not allowed to fall asleep until they turn one final time and smile at each other. They want that to be the last thing they see before they turn off the lights and close their eyes. It's pretty amazing. When they get up, here's something cool. When they get up in the morning, they have a tough time getting out of bed. Why, because they're old and in their 80s? No, they just enjoy talking. They lose track of time, they're like, whoa, it's 7.30, we gotta get going with the day. Like, wow, right? Who would not want that? That's amazing. Here's perhaps the most amazing thing about their marriage. For several years, they worked together hanging wallpaper, and they did not kill each other. They are still married. That is remarkable in and of itself. In fact, here's the coolest thing about all of this. They had their own code language. They had their own code language. The guy would come in, spread it out, get it all nice and set up, the big, the big splotches, and his wife comes behind him and smooths everything out. Now, when you have somebody install wallpaper in your home, what do you do? You stay in the room and you watch it. You supervise it because you know there will be creases, right? They feel their clients looking over their shoulder, so they have a code language. The husband messes something up. He knows he messed it up. He can say a certain code word or a number to his wife, and she knew exactly what she needed to do to come in behind him and cover his mistakes. That would work in all marriages, right, ladies? Do you want a marriage like this? Do you want your ending to look like this ending. Yeah, sign me up for that, right? My wife is raising two hands, right? How do we get there? What's the roadmap? What do we do? Well, as we've learned in this series, we've gotta get help, we've gotta get hope, we've gotta get health from God's word. We've looked at Genesis 1, we've looked at Genesis 2, and today we will glean some final insights as we turn to Genesis chapter three. As we do, as we do. Here's kind of the four-part movement that we'll work through. Here is your outline. First, we will see the true enemy that we fight, the true enemy that we fight. Second, we will see the true consequences that we face, the true consequences that we face. Third, we will see the true hope that we hold fast to. And fourth, we will see some practical guidelines and tips with the true help 
that we follow. All right, let's start at that first one, the true enemy that we fight. Hey, in marriage, can we be real? Sometimes husbands and wives get cross with each other. Is that a true statement? Yes. Yes, sometimes we disagree about hard things. Sometimes there are tense discussions. When these happen, do we not feel the gap in the distance between us? We feel it coming. We feel it in the middle of discussion, but we especially feel it in the aftermath. And friends, it sometimes can feel like a punch in the gut. It's not a fun place to be. We need help. We need hope. And in these times, we have to remember my spouse is not my enemy. I have a different enemy, and we need to tackle that enemy together with the Lord's help. Let's see that in the text. We're going to spend some time right now in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'm just going to go one verse at a time, maybe two or three. Stop, explain, apply, then come back to the text. There's not going to be one big chunk reading. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. This is God's word. It is written and given to us in love and for our good. Genesis chapter 3, picking it up in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Stop right there. Stop right there. What did we learn about our true enemy? We learned this. Many of you know, if you go to Revelation chapter 12, you see that that serpent is none other than the devil, Satan himself. Yes, he has disguised himself as a created serpent. He is a disguiser. He is a concealer. He works undercover. Next, we're going to see that he is a schemer. How do I get that? How do I get that? He said to the woman, he said to the woman, when Satan wants to launch an attack on God, does he go to God directly? When he wants to drive a wedge between God and his people, does he go attack God directly? He can't. He cannot. So what does he do? He goes to someone else. He goes to the helper, the woman. He's going to use that to get at the head, the husband, and ultimately drive a wedge, not just between those two, but between those two and God. He is a schemer. He attacks indirectly. This is a big part of his strategy. Look at verse 1 again. Do you see where it says, did God really say? Oh, friends, when I read those words, I'm not being fake. I'm not trying to summon up pastor speak here. Can I tell you, those are some of the words in the Bible that hurt me the most. They're so alive and so true today. How many times do you sit down with somebody and you hear some variant of did God really say? Satan is creating doubt and confusion around God's word. How many times do we hear, that's just your interpretation, did God really say that? How many times do you sit down, you open the Bible, you walk through and people just wanna fight you? right? They just want to, they just want to, no, it can't be that way. They'll say, well, what about my personal experience, huh? That trips you up. I've done this before. That's your experience. You cannot put that on par with God's word. God's word. That's a way of saying, did God really say, I know better. I got this. Oh, friends, do you see his tactic? Do you see his strategy? He's creating seeds of doubt. And then what else does he say? You shall not eat of how many trees? Any. Did God really say that? No, now he's misquoting and twisting God's word. Do we really believe that Satan knows God's word better than we do? Wow. 
Do you see the care we need? Do you see how we need to be in the word? We need to be people of the book. We need to know it, we need to understand it. Even the Bible itself says we've gotta rightly divide it. Friends, there is an enemy, and here's what he does. He subtly smuggles in the idea that he and Eve can be on par with God, can call his word into question, and can sit in judgment on his word and on his ways. Do you see that happening? Now look at the response in verse two. Verse three. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. She's got it right so far. We're proud of you, right? It's like high five, fist bump, girl. Get them. But watch what she says next. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. What just happened? Eve added. She added to God's word. God did not say that in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He never said, if you touch it, you will die. Eve does what so many of us do. We tighten God's word. In a day and an age where we are worried about the loosening of God's word, which we are right to do, we cannot overreact and tighten God's word. We cannot make God stricter than he really is. We cannot misrepresent him. That's what Eve does. Satan catches it. And watch what happens in verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What just happened? Satan gets overt. He's no longer covert. He's out in the open. He openly contradicts God's word. You will not die. Do you see how he's continuing to put him and Eve on God's level? This is not good. This is not good. And then what does he say next? God knows your eyes will be open. Now he's got Eve not just doubting God's word, but God's plan, God's goodness, God's character. He's seed of doubting her. He's dealing her cards that she's going to play. And this is so tragic. This is so tragic. What is Satan saying? He's saying, Eve, he doesn't have your best interests at heart. He doesn't have your best interest in heart. Eve, there is a better out there for you. Go get it. Don't let God limit you. Don't let God hold you back. Do you see that? And then look at the clincher words. You will be, say it, you will be like God. Eve, why advance God's kingdom when you can have your own? You can get what you want and more of what you want apart from him. It's better that way. Today, this would look like, ladies, don't you want autonomy and independence and freedom and liberation? Is that not a mega theme in our society? That's what's dangled before Eve. Eve, don't look upward. Don't look outward to God. Look inward to your feelings and you will know the truth. And that false truth, will it set you free? Will it? Will it? Let's look at verse 6. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve took the bait, and she ran with it. Watch what happens. Sees that it's good. Sees that it's delightful, it's desirable. God made it and, it, and it's good. It's fundamentally good. He just gives some guidelines around it, right? Satan has now subtly snuck his line of logic into her own reasoning. Is Eve really thinking for herself? 
Is she really autonomous? Is she really independent? Is she really free, liberated, and empowered to go her own way and do her own thing? No. She's playing the cards that Satan is dealing her, and she's playing them the way he wants her to play them. How do we know that? She does his bidding not once but twice. She ate, she took, she ate, she did what Satan wanted. And then what does she do? She recruits her husband who passively lets her do it. I'm kind of amped, you can tell. I'm not mad at you. I feel I need to say that. I'm so sad at what happens. And as I read this, I just see marriage after marriage after marriage after marriage that we counsel and we counsel and we counsel. And it's like, oh, do you see how you're playing out Eve's story? Husband, do you see how you're playing out Adam's story? Oh, friends, husbands and wives, we really do have an enemy. We have an enemy, and it's not each other. It is not each other. Satan hates God. He hates his kingdom. And as we've learned over the last three weeks, what is to advance God's kingdom? The institution of marriage. Doesn't it make sense that Satan would hate marriage? That he would try to attack it? He would try to drive wedges between husband and wife and drive wedges between the two and God? That's what he does here. It's what he does here. Can we be honest? Can we be real? All marriages have nicks, dings, and dents. Can we say amen to that? Can we own that? The enemy uses us to create these own self and other inflicted dings and dents and nicks. But when you remember that that person across the dinner table, that person you share a bed with, is not your enemy. Oh, there's hope. There's hope, there's good news. When you remember that person is not your enemy, that truth, that truth protects you from resentment, from bitterness, and from despair. That truth helps you in the middle of tense disagreements. It's like, honey, hold on, hold on. We're fighting, we're opposed. Satan's winning. No, 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 we need to fight against him together. We need to fight for each other, not against each other. Let's reset. Let's pick this up tomorrow. Let's set it down. Let's pray on this. Let's go to God's word instead. Oh, friends, there's hope, there's help. When you remember this truth, it drives you to seek the Lord's help so that you fight together and not against each other. It gets messy in marriage when we lose sight of this truth. There's consequences, there's fallout, there's aftermath. Can we look at those together in the text now? Let's go to our second point. Let's see those consequences that we face, the consequences that we face. Why? Because like Hurricane Ian this last week, hitting my native state, Florida, there is a trail of damage that we need to unpack. Let's continue to just go through verse by verse. And what I want you to do is watch how the last three weeks, everything that we've learned gets turned upside down and on its head. Let's go to Genesis chapter three, verse six. I've already read it. You've read it. Let's go back to it. In verse six, do you remember those three rings? Do you remember those three rings from two weeks ago? Let's bring that, let's bring that slide up. Let's go to those rings. Do you remember these rings? In verse six, verse six, we said, we said in those rings that Adam and Eve are to expand the garden. Remember that? The outer ring? In verse six, is Eve expanding God's garden kingdom? No. Whose kingdom is she expanding? Satan's. And when she 
when she hands the fruit to her husband? Whose kingdom is she expanding? Satan's. Do you see the inversion? Do you see it flipped on its head? Let's go to verse 7. Let's go to verse 7. In verse 7, we find this. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's go back to those rings. The middle ring is this. We said that Adam and Eve were to cultivate their garden for God's glory. They were also supposed to cultivate their own relationship, their own little mini garden. Well, in verse 7, what just happened? They cultivate the garden for the first time. They take some leaves and they make something. That's cultivation. But are they doing it for God's glory? Are they doing it to grow their relationship? No. They're doing it because they're shame. They need a covering. And now they're walling off their relationship. The visual reminder of their complementary roles is now sealed off to the other person. Do you see the inversion of all we learned in these three rings? That's not all. Let's go to verses 8 through 11. What do we learn here? Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He, being God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What did we just learn? We learned this. We said in week one that the original purpose of marriage was to do what? For man and woman together in their marriage union to bear God's image, to advance his kingdom reign, to bring more of it on the earth, a kingdom reign that brings what? Peace, order, and harmony. Do we see that happening right here? No, there's a wedge between them and God. They're alienated from God. There is no peace with God. They know God in his judgment in this scene. They're about to meet a God who will discipline, who will have wrath. Friends, this is an inversion of the very purpose of marriage. This is not harmony. This is not peace. Our God is cleaning up the disorder that they brought. What about verses 12 and 13? What do we learn here? Go with me to verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Friends, what was Adam's role from last week? What did we learn? Head, guardian, initiator. Is Adam doing that in verse 12? No, what does he do in verse 12? This is kind of gross. He blame shift. God, you made a defective lady. It's her fault. Ladies, ever feel like a husband does? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> you ever feel that? Oh man, is this a man who is ahead taking responsibility, not just for his actions, but as a head, you learn as a pastor, you learn in the army, some of you learn as business leaders, as foremen, you learn in your respective careers. I have to take as a leader responsibility for another person's action. That's what a true head does. That's why God goes to Adam first, even though Eve ate first. Is Adam being ahead? No, scratch that off the list. Is Adam being a guardian who protects his wife, who protects his marriage, who protects the garden, who protects the relationship with God? No, no, no. Is he being an initiator? He passively lets his wife fall into sin. He does nothing. Don't forget verse 6. 
she gave some to her husband who what? Was with her. If you've ever heard the old phrase, while Adam was away, Eve went astray, strike that from the record. Adam was there. Do you see how he abandoned his roles? Verse 13, let's go there. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, at least Eve's honest, right? Let's give the girl some credit, right? She doesn't try to blame shift. But we said last week, Eve is what? She's a responder, a nurturer. Ladies, anyone remember? And a, starts with an H. Helper, thank you. She's a responder, a nurturer, a helper. Is she a responder? Yeah, but who's she responding to? Satan, not her husband. She's responding to the wrong thing. Is she a nurturer? Is she bringing life? Is she bringing spiritual life? Is she bringing that into her husband's life? No, what is she bringing? Spiritual death and eventually physical death. She's not being a nurturer. As a, as a helper, is she inviting her husband in as head? Sweetheart, what do you think of this? You're the head. No, she kind of dominates the conversation. Is there an instinct to turn to her husband? Hey, can you be part of this? No. Do you see how all of the last three weeks have been systematically turned on their head? They're upside down. And what's the result here? What's the result? There's consequences. There's consequences. There's curses that are still in effect to this very day. Let's look at a few of them. Let's start with Eve, not to pick on women, not at all, not at all. Let's go to Genesis chapter three, verse 16. God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Ladies, is this true? Yeah, yeah, it's glorious, it's beautiful, but going through it is very painful, is it not? Is it just childbearing, the, the act, the physical act of labor that is painful? No, this explains why there's infertility, why there's miscarriage, why there's birth defects, genetic defects, physical and mental handicaps. Is your family marked by this? Mine has been marked by two of the four that I just said to you. We have known these things. This is a result of the fall. Look at verse 16, the second part. It says this, your desire shall be for, and you might have a little footnote there. Please look at that footnote. Your desire shall be against your husband, but he shall rule over you. Here we have the battle of the sexes. What God is saying is, Eve, you're gonna to have to work harder to be a nurturer. And now what he says is, Eve, you're gonna to have to work harder to be a responder and a helper. It's not gonna be easy. Is this still in effect today? Yes, it is. Let me go on a tangent. Come over here with me. Men will take this idea of headship too far. It can go to an unhealthy place. Men are not designed to be lords, domineering, to rule over in such a way that it's about authority and my need to be in control. We call that toxic masculinity, and that is something that our culture has rightly identified. We reject that here. We absolutely 100% reject it. But can I tell you, in every church I've been in, in um, as an adult, 
in Florida, in Washington, in California, in Texas, in Illinois, and now in Indiana. There are godly ladies in every church I've ever served that will say this. Learning how to let the husband be the head does not come naturally. It does not come easily. And they will often say, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. But it's wound up being the best and most relieving thing I've ever done. It does not come easily. This curse is still valid. It is still true. Ladies, we're not just here to beat up on you, right? Let's look at the men. Let's go to verse 17. I'm gonna, I read one verse for the ladies. I'm going to read one verse for the guys. Is that fair? We all good? Same page? Let's look at verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you have listened, in parentheses, this one time, that was funny, because you have listened this one time to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. What did God just do? What did God just do? If he teaches Eve a lesson, you're going to have to work harder to live up to your roles. He just said to Adam, you're going to have to work a lot harder to lean into, to learn how to live out your role of head, initiator, and guardian. We've said we reject toxic masculinity, but there is a beta male, right? There is an effeminate male that we also reject here at Grace. A dude needs to be a dude. It's not found in waxed eyebrows, a waxed chest, bodybuilding, no. It's also not found in going to the other end of the extreme and becoming a beta male or effeminate, no, no. Men, we must lean into this. We must understand where we can get masculinity wrong by overemphasizing it. We must understand where we can get masculinity wrong by underemphasizing it. There is a real masculinity which, which we are called, and as we lean into the curse, as we work hard, we will grow into these roles of head, guardian, and initiator. Let's look at a final consequence, a consequence that's not found in Genesis 3, but Paul, reflecting back on Genesis 3, informs us of in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. We learn that through the one man, Adam, because of his trespass, because of his sin, death enters the world and claims all of us. Because of Adam's sin, all of humanity now knows the misery and the presence of Satan, sin, and death. Adam's actions become our problem. We're born separated from God in the original sin that we talked about in the declaration of faith and under a curse. This impacts all of our lives, but it especially impacts our marriages. What are we to do? Are we left hopeless? Is there hope? If we've gone through some of the hard consequences, let's now see our God's goodness and his kindness as we look at the true hope that we are to hold to. Let's look at that third point. I've said we're born with the cards stacked against us. We're born with the cards stacked against our marriages. What do we do? Where do we turn to? Perhaps a better question is this, to whom do we turn to? His name is Jesus. Let's see how he offers the hope that we need for our marriages and how his good news is our good news and it's good news for marriage. You see, we did not look at one of those curses, did we? Which one was it? Go ahead, yeah, I heard it. We did not look at the curse on the serpent, thank you. 
Let's look at the curse on him. Let's look at the opening of Genesis 3.14. The Lord God said to the serpent, let's skip down to Genesis 3.15. To the serpent, God says, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is one promised. There is one promise to Eve who will come, who will come from her line and he will undo all that Adam did. Who is this one who would come? Who, this is actually called the Proto-Evangelion, Proto-First Evangelion Gospel, the first preaching of the gospel. Who is the one who would come and stomp the serpent's head? Let's go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 17. We see that the promised one that is to come is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who would come and crush the serpent's head, but we've got to ask how. How? How would Jesus do this? How would he do this? Here's how. You see, Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 is the one who would come and fast for 40 days, 40 nights in a state of hunger and be tempted, not in a garden, but now in a wilderness. He would be tempted by Satan. He would be tested by Satan. But unlike his ancestor Adam, he would pass the test and resist temptation. But that's not all. That's not all. You see, where Adam failed in his role as head, as guardian, as initiator, Jesus comes along as our true and better head, guardian, and initiator. How? When Jesus came to this earth as a man, he initiated. He initiated our salvation, and he inaugurates a new kingdom that will come and replace the old one. When he came, he came as the rightful head, the true king of Israel. And when he died, he died as a guardian. Shielding us from what? Shielding all of us who would come to him by faith from God's own wrath over our sin. He is our true and better head. He is our true and better initiator. He is our true and better guardian. But it's not just a Jesus for men. Jesus was a man, but Jesus is for women. How is Jesus for women? We said that Eve was to be what? A responder, a nurturer, and a helper. Jesus fulfills all of those things as well. How can we say that? You see, Jesus came, but his father sent him. Jesus is obeying his father. He obeyed his father every day of his life. He's responding to the father. Jesus is the true and better responder. And when he comes, when he dies, when he rises again, what has he accomplished? Eternal life. He commits to bringing us into his kingdom, but also growing us into his kingdom so that we grow and we're made more and more like him. And your spouse grows and is made more and more like him. Jesus is a nurturer. He's the true and better nurturer. What about helper? What about helper? After Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, what did he do? He sat down at God's right hand. He reigns. And in his reign, what's the first thing he did? He sent the Holy Spirit, who is called what? The helper. The Greek word is paraclete. He sent the helper. Jesus is the true and better responder, the true and better nurturer, the true and better helper. And what are the results of Jesus getting it right, where we got it wrong, where Adam and Eve got it wrong? What are the results? Well, where Adam ruined God's creation, look at 2 Corinthians 5, Jesus makes us new creations. The old is gone, the new has come, and that includes the old taint of Adam's sin. But that's not all. Look at verse 20. Jesus restores us to our original role. He makes us his ambassadors. What does that mean? We can now go and expand his kingdom. But that's not all. There's another result. There's another result. 
You see, where Adam lost us access to the tree of life, Jesus restores that as well. Go with me to the end of the chapter. Let's look at the tree of life in Genesis 23, 22, and 24. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And watch this. Now unless he reaches out his hand and takes also of what? The tree of life, good, and eats and lives forever. Go to verse 24. He drove out the man from the garden, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, a guardian angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to do what? Guard the way, not just to Eden, but to the tree of life. We have lost access to that. But when you go, not just to the end of the chapter, but when you go to the end of the Bible itself, look at these words in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of who? The Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. Through the middle of the street of the city and on either side of the river is what? The tree of life which is there for you and me to eat from for the healing of the nations. What Adam lost us access to, Jesus gives us eternal access to. Do you see who your Savior is? Do you see how Jesus redeems this sad situation for all who come to faith in him? Jesus has undone what Adam has done. But if I were you, I'd have a question. Okay, that sounds nice. I kind of knew you were going there because I know you, Pastor John. But does this apply? Does Jesus' good news, does Jesus' gospel apply to our marriages? Oh, yes, it does. Yes, it does. And how can you know this? How can you trust this? How can you rest in this? Let's go to perhaps the most famous passage on marriage in all of the Bible, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 through 25. What do we see there? We see Jesus coming as the head of the church, coming as the husband, right? The church is the bride of Christ, and he comes and he loves her, and he lays his life down for her. Everything Jesus did, everything that Jesus accomplishes for us, he's doing as a husband who's laying it on the line for his bride that he loves. If Jesus can fix Adam's mess and do so as a husband, then there is hope for your failed marriage there is hope for your hurting marriage, and there is growth for your marriage, even if it's a good marriage. You can take it to great, you can take it to godly. There is always hope in the gospel. Why? Because ultimately, Jesus is the true and better husband. Once we rest in this, once we build our lives and anchor our lives on this truth, once we have the power of the gospel coursing through our souls, coursing through our veins, being pumped into every chamber of our hearts, we can go and live for him. How can we go live for him? Let's look and let's close with the true hope that we follow. You know, if Jesus' gospel gives hope to our marriages, if it gives us the strength to grow and change, if it gives us his promise that he's there in the midst of the argument, the disagreement, fighting for us, fighting for our union, there's some tips, some practical tips and tricks that we can learn. There's some advice that we can take away. There's some ways we can live. I'm gonna give you seven. I know that cuts against the grain of what I normally do, but just see what applies to you here. First, First, what do we take away? We take away this. First, never forget 
that you're fighting for each other, you're not fighting against each other. As you feel the tension coming on, in the middle of a tense argument, in the aftermath of it, never ever forget you can stop and say, wait, we're fighting against each other, we need to be fighting for each other. Number one, you're not fighting against each other. You are not, at the end of the day, each other's enemy. That's number one. What's number two? Number two is this. Please be aware of the voices that are speaking into your life and into your marriage. Please be aware, right? Like, that's Adam and Eve's problem. Eve got some false teaching. Adam got some really bad advice, and they listened to it, right? Can we say that? Can we say that? There are friends you have. There's family you have. There's books. There's podcasts. There's blogs. There's vlogs. There's radio shows that might offer some really golden nuggets, but some of them are not going to be helpful, and some of them will claim the name of Jesus, and some of them will say, look at this verse. If that happens, please come see me. Come see Pastor Brad. Come see our ministry leaders, grace men, grace women, community group leader, elders. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the lens that they're using to read the scripture and let's see if it's not cracked. Please be aware of the voices going into your life and into your marriage. That's number two. What's number three? Number three is this. Men, men, reject Adam's passivity. Reject Adam's passivity. Adam stood by and did nothing you cannot. Lead the family in prayer. Lead the family in Bible reading. You don't have to be a scholar to read the Bible to your kids and with your wife and talk about it. It's okay. You're not on the hook. There's grace. But lead the family in prayer, lead the family in Bible reading, but lead the family in consistently being here on Sundays for Sunday worship. That has got to be one of the marks of a man. Is he consistent? Is he faithful? Is he reliable? Lead the family. You will have to fight for this. It will not be easy because of that curse. That is okay. God is growing you. He is using that to grow you into the head, the initiator, and the guardian that he sees when he looks at you. Grow into that. Be an initiator. Reject Adam's passivity. Do not leave your wife hurting and overwhelmed and bitter and resentful. Why? Because she has to do her role and pick up your slack as well. Men reject passivity. That's number three. What's number four? Number four is this. Ladies, what do you do if your husband is not stepping up? What do you do? Number one. Guard your heart against nagging, scolding, needling, gossiping with your sisters about him. Guard your heart against emotionally manipulating him. And I'm going to say this, and I'm just going to say it. Do not use the bed as a weapon. Do not use the bed as a carrot on a string dangled before him to get him to do what you want. If you exchange the bed for what you want, that's not grace, that's prostitution. Can we just call it what it is? Ladies, guard your heart, guard your heart. That's what you don't do. Here's what you do do. Here's what you do. Pray for him. Lovingly encourage him where he gets it right. 
Don't be scared of raising your hand and asking for help. And remember what I said last week. His headship is not there to keep you from talking to a pastor, a counselor, an elder, or someone just older and wiser. Let's get the help that we need. If you are scared that you picked the wrong husband, Jesus is not done with him. Let's get him the help he needs. That's what you do. Fifth, please, 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 Talk about these lenses. Talk about these four weeks. Ask, hey, if this is the purpose for marriage, Genesis 1, where do we get it right? Where do we get it wrong? Hey, if these are the tasks, the kingdom tasks that accomplish this kingdom marriage that we saw in Genesis 2, where are we strong? Where are we weak? What are we good at? Let's talk. Genesis 2, part 2, what was it? Here are the roles, the kingdom roles we have to get at the kingdom task, to accomplish the kingdom purpose. Where are we strong? Where are we weak? Hey, what went wrong in the garden? What's the curse? Where are you tempted? Where am I tempted? Let's talk. That's five, but six is don't just talk. Use them. Use them. Use them. How do you use them? Let me give you an example. Division of labor in the home, right? That's where we can fight. Let's take down something. Let's take down something. How many of you, like me, were raised where washing the dishes, doing laundry, cooking food, cleaning, and scrubbing baby bottoms is woman's work and not man's work? Anybody? That was me, that's how I was raised. Here's the thing, use these lenses. Use these lenses. What if my wife could do some ministry that really energizes her? What if God shaped her and gifted her at something? Maybe I do the laundry so she can go do the women's Bible study. Maybe I cook, and it's gonna be burnt, sweetheart. I remember that first year of marriage, it's coming you right now, right? So you can go, get out of the house, pray, read your Bible. Oh, friends, let's do away with traditional marriage roles. Let's look at kingdom purposes, and let's ask how we can advance them. What a better grid. What a better lens. And that will revolutionize all the people that criticize us for traditional marriage roles that oppress women. Let's look at Jesus' roles instead. Let's be biblical. Six, that's number six. What's number seven? Number seven is this. Seventh, know your spouse. Know your spouse. Adam and Eve lost sight of who they were and who they were created to be as individuals. But a real tragedy is this. They lost sight of who the other person was. They lost sight of who the other person was created to be. They needed more knowledge of each other. Ask questions. How are we alike? How are we different? How have we grown together? How are we growing apart? Why are we different? If we go like this on some things, what made it that way? It may not be bad, it might be good. Disagreement could be a great achievement, right? But ask questions like these. How was my spouse raised? What was their home like growing up? How was conflict handled? How were decisions made? Who really wore the pants? How did they decide uh, uh, financial questions? Was Jesus a spiritual force in their home? Was Jesus a spiritual force in my home? Was God's design for marriage honored? Was it lived out? Was it real? Right, like there are so many problems we can prevent in a marriage when we take God's design for marriage on the one hand and intersect it with our spouse's starting point and how they've grown over time. We've gotta do this together. What's number seven? Know your spouse. Friends, as we close this series, as we close this sermon, we've seen the purpose of marriage. Let's put it up. Genesis chapter one, here's what we learned. We've seen the key tasks, the kingdom tasks, 
that accomplish this kingdom purpose. Let's put that up. Remember the rings? We then turned and we said, okay, what are the roles that accomplish these kingdom tasks that accomplish this kingdom purpose? Here they are, initiator, head, guardian, responder, nurturer, and helper. Some of y'all are tired of me saying it, but a month from now, you're going to be able to quote it and you'll thank me. (laughs) What have we learned? What have we learned? We've learned these things, but we've also seen where it can go wrong. We've seen where it still goes wrong, but we've seen how Jesus really is the solution to this. Grace, let's be a church that aims at his gospel. Let's fulfill these purposes for marriage. Let's know his peace, his order, his harmony in our own marriages, and let's take them to the outside world. Why? So they can share in his kingdom peace, order, and harmony. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, do you have peace? Do you have order? Do you have harmony in your internal life, in your relationships? Would you like to? Let's introduce you to Jesus. He will provide that in spades and he will provide it all of your life even after your spouse has died and gone to meet Jesus. Does that sound good? Let's pray. Father God, we need your help. Father God, we love you, we praise you. Father God, we confess we don't get it right. I confess as a pastor, I don't get it right. Father, I I, I mess up, I make mistakes, we all do. But Father, you give more grace, you give help to the hurting and hope to the hopeless. Oh, Father God, please stir in us and please help us to be a people who can go and live these things out. We love you, we praise you. We ask this all in Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen.